Yeah. Every day's working dead for you. So don't nap. Red cap. You've got to hustle now. The 815 is due. Red cap. Red cap. That's what you keep shouting to the throng. It's no snap. Red cap. And yet you have to tote that baggage all day long. Whenever folks go on vacation, you at the railroad station, ready to lend them a hand. But some of them don't understand that a nickel or two, like a dollar to you, so raise them. Welcome to another episode of Pastrami Agogo and Other Ride Tales of the City. I'm your host, Arlene Shulman, and my guest today is acclaimed author, Eric K. Washington. Welcome, Eric. Hi. Thanks for coming to my living room. <laughs> well, we ha- we're around the kitchen table. I mean, my ta- studio. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're around the kitchen table, yeah. literally. Um, but Eric has written a wonderful book called Boss of the Grips, The Life of James H. Williams and the Red Caps of Grand Central Terminal. Eric, what made you decide to select Mr. Williams as a subject? What intrigued you about him? He kind of came to me because I was giving a a tour of Grand Central for the Centennial in 2013, and I wanted to write something about the connection of African Americans and the railroad, and I started doing some research, and uh, I kind of hit pay dirt because Grand Central being as significant as it is to American railroads uh, that would all want to copy what he whatever was going on there, that's where he was located. So uh, Williams was interesting just from the beginning uh, instances of me finding out little by little what he was involved in, what he was up against, and what he did with this job that was really an unfair um, uh, labor situation. And what was he up against? Well, it was it was segregated. Um, it was it was a Jim part of the Jim Crow era. He starts at Grand Central in 1903, and he integrates what was then an all white uh, workforce of red caps. And these were the fellows who were uh, essentially baggage carriers, but also meant to give information to be walking encyclopedias. And that was a system that had been started in 1895, March 1st, 1895, and with a dozen men who uh, all spoke different languages kind of to reflect the the uh, foreigners who would visit the city who would have needs to get information, to know uh, how to get where in whatever language they spoke. And this didn't work out very well. Uh, These men were, I think, quickly disgruntled by... um, you know, their task to kind of particularly help out young women who were traveling alone more often than they had been before, maybe to hold a hat box here or a valise there, uh, maybe a small child. Um, I'm sure that when you're acting in that capacity as sort of a gallant, you know, uh, uh, almost appearing as a knight in shining armor uh, to a young woman who got off the the train, uh, she might very likely say, and i couldn't blame her, like, oh, can you take this too? Can you take this too? Can you take the baby? He doesn't talk much, you know, that sort of thing. And after a few years, a lot of these men, just by dint of being white, were able to 
move on to other departments if they would wanted to or some other occupation. So with that kind of uh, dissatisfaction, and it's not really clear um, by any documentation that I was able to find, but they did decide to integrate, and James Williams was the first black to move into this position. He must have been recommended by somebody uh, of very strong influence, uh, probably Charles Thorley. Um, we don't know for sure, but he had worked for Charles Thorley, who was one of the preeminent florists in New York of the Gilded Age. And um, he wielded a lot of influence and a lot of um, business savvy, and he knew everyone. So someone like that, of that capacity, uh, would have recommended Williams for this job. And there didn't seem to have been any kind of pushback, which rather indicated since that would have not would not have been uncommon for there to have been protests when a black integrated a white workforce. Uh, it rather suggested that it was probably a planned maneuver to make the workforce all black, uh, which would have matched their rail roaming counterparts, the famous um, sleeping car porters, uh, better known as uh, Pullman porters. Within a year of Williams being hired, 1903, um, the red cap force at Grand Central is entirely black. And what he's able to do, this is also interesting because he starts at Grand Central um, at, a at a particular time when uh, the ground is broken to create the new station that we are all using today. And it's being built over the old Grand Central station um, on the same site. Trains are still running on time. And this is a rigorous situation for for these workers. And this, this the sort of acceptable tenet of what a porter, a red cap porter was supposed to do kind of changes when it's all black as opposed to when they were white uh, red caps. And they were used to a situation where they would be put upon. Uh, the writer E.B. White even described them many years later, which is an indication of how long they worked under this this kind of segregated system, that uh, the job of a red cap was rather akin to being that of a beast of burden. And you would see images of them in the media, if you watch old movies uh, or photographs, and they're carrying not just a hat box and a valise, but golf clubs and all manner of things. And they're still expected, what didn't change, they're still expected to be uh, walking encyclopedias, which is to say, you know, you get to the train station and you've got a million questions. You're kind of lost. You don't know where your gate is, where to put your bags, um, how to get to your, your trolley. Um, you've got a connection to make, you know, where you can freshen up or, or do whatever, you know, before you have to be back to, to make your connection. So they still needed to be able to give all of that kind of information. What Williams did that really intrigued me, that was really interesting, was it was a number of things, but one in particular, and this was one of the things he was most famous for, was he hired, not exclusively, but especially a lot of young black college men. So a lot of young black students, I mean, anybody who's going to school, going to college, um, is used to the idea of having to get a side job to help defray costs so your parents don't <laughs> complain that, you know, you know, 
money doesn't grow on trees, you know. So you work as a waiter or um, you deliver pizza or whatever, you know. It was no different for black students. But it didn't matter if you were on a Ph.D. track. If you were African-American, your options were limited in terms of what jobs you could get. And he hired a lot of these young men who came from uh, HBCUs from the South, um, blacks who were students, often the rare black student in Northeastern colleges and local colleges like Columbia or, or NYU. Uh, it was often uh, the first opportunity that a lot of these students, from black students from different parts of the Eastern Seaboard at least, got to meet each other and form bonds. And it was not uncommon to see headlines uh, such as uh, PhD carries your bags because it was it was seen as, as a rather uh, ironic situation. Uh, Williams was proud of the fact, and he spoke of the fact that his department put more um, kids through college than any other department in Grand Central. And it was estimated um, in, in some articles that one out of every three of like 40% of, of Red Caps had college training. So this is pretty significant uh, considering that he was supervising upwards over the years uh, of 500 men. So it made him pretty significant both in the the travel culture for the traveling public in not just Grand Central, but in railroad stations across the country that he influenced by his leadership, but also in Harlem where he worked with, you know, community groups and, and organizations like NAACP and, and what have you. So, so there was a lot to kind of fascinate me. It is a fascinating book. And speaking of influence, he wasn't just a standalone figure. He had influence throughout Harlem, throughout the fire department. He had some of his uh, employees went on to renown. Would you speak about yes. his legacy? Uh, and you just mentioned the fire department. Very significantly, um, his son, Wesley Williams uh, was the first black fireman, in, uh, Manhattan's first black uh, fireman. And then uh, through progressive uh, promotions, he was the first black fire officer in the entire city. But even before Wesley, um, Williams's assistant um, in 1911, uh, Jesse Battle, Sam Jesse Battle, became New York City's first black police officer. So Chief Williams, as he was called at Grand Central, was often um, spoken of in the same breath with uh, these two most famous black civil servants in, in, in the city, uh, Jesse Battle and his son, Wesley Williams. But the Red Caps, um, who sort of graduated, he often, you know, he never went beyond grade school himself, but he was a big booster of students and people, who, or not just students, but people who were, who were trying to make something of their of their lives. And they came with interests in every discipline that you can imagine. So um, people like Richard Huey was uh, one of the workingest black actors on Broadway um, from Pulitzer Prize winning plays like In, in, Absalom's, bo in Absalom's Bosom and uh, uh, Porgy before it became Gershwin's musical version of Porgy and Bess. Um, Bloomer Girl, where he stopped the show every night, starring Celeste Holm in the 40s. But he was also a booking agent, um, so he got a lot of black actors' work uh, through Actors' Equity, and he was a restaurateur. Um, there was another fellow, George Gabriel, who was born in, um, in Abyssinia, and he came here on the behest of um, former President Teddy Roosevelt. He had been Roosevelt's interpreter during a safari in Africa in 1909, and um, 
comes to New York in 1913, just before the Grand Central opens, ends up using his 18 languages um, to be an interpreter. Um, another fellow who was a, a motorcycle enthusiast, and he saves his tips from red capping and gets on his Indian bicycle. I guess that was a precursor to Harley-Davidson's. And 1929 takes off from the corner of 135th Street and 7th Avenue to go around the globe on his motorcycle, comes back the following year in 1930. So you had people like that of all different interests, doctors, lawyers, congressmen, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., um, Paul Robeson, Paul Robeson um, even the Manhattan Borough President for two months in 1965, Earl Brown, who was a, a Harvard graduate, um, um, a rather uh, influential journalist and editor. He worked for Life magazine and Harper's, um, and a local politician, uh, clerics, uh, really every discipline that you can imagine um, needed to pay bills uh, as they were coming up through the ranks of school and took these kinds of jobs. And uh, these are just ones I'm mentioning who worked at, at Grand Central. So this was reflected, this life um, and this option as side work for a lot of people, for uh, African Americans during the Jim Crow era uh, of their early uh, 20th century. Red cap, red cap. Every day's working bad for you. So don't nap. Red cap, you got to hustle now. You're listening to Pastrami A Go Go and other ride tales of the city. Our guest is Eric K. Washington, the author of the book Boss of the Grips The Life of James H. Williams and the Red Caps of Grand Central Terminal. And why are we only hearing about him now? Interestingly enough, um, I, well, I think a lot of what kicked it off was the fact that Grand Central was having a centennial, so it gave people like myself an opportunity to kind of rediscover um, what went on in the early days of, of the Grand Central. You know, when it opened up, this magnificent place, it was forecast uh, to be good enough to last for at least 50 years. And <laughs> you know, it, it did better than that. So, of course, when anything is having, you know, any grand place is having a grand birthday, um, you, it's a time to reflect back on what was it like in the old days. And um, I had no idea. Certainly, my um, family, you know, was from Harlem. Um, but I didn't know anyone in the family who had worked on the railroad. And I, while I knew sort of, you know, through, you know, other, you know, sources of black history, um, watching old movies, that this was a part of black life, I was really privileged, I felt, to get this sort of, to be able to lean into this history and get a close-up look. So I think a lot of it is coming out now just by dint of the fact that, you know, Grand Central had this anniversary and... Um, it's also a time when a lot of these subjects are are coming back to light. I think a lot of people are are really getting in touch with their inner historian um, who are realizing that everybody has a story. Nobody doesn't have a story and that even somebody in my family has something to tell or something that they didn't want to tell that I want to know. So I think that's part of the reason why he's becoming, a, uh, he's gaining interest. 
and why he's relevant today as well, because I think when you talk about a place that's being celebrated like Grand Central Terminal, um, you always pick out the obvious names, um, Cornelius Vanderbilt, the Commodore, um, who created um, Grand Central going back to 1871 and built it into you know, what it became. Uh, Jacqueline Onassis, who helped to save it from being raised you know, in, in the 60s after you know, what happened to Penn Station. But that story is not complete when you talk of the storied history of this railroad terminal uh, without including uh, James H. Williams and the Red Caps, who really were an integral part to that Swiss watch precision that made the station function. Um, and not only made it function, but were woven into intricately into that beguiling experience that every traveler who, who knew the, the age of, of rail um, appreciated. As a historian, your book is meticulously researched. What was the most surprising fact that you found about Mr. Williams? Well, the most surprising fact came immediately because a lot of the, the legend about him was that he was the first red cap. And I think that a lot of that was rehearsed uh, during a time when we didn't have the advantage of uh, finding primary sources right at hand, where now we have the internet, we can do a, a, a search, and a lot of those old archives which are being put online, we can get an idea of where they are and that they exist. So I was able to, to almost immediately refute that by finding not just articles attesting to when um, George Daniels, he was the general passenger agent at for New York Central, started um, the red cap system, um, but find in, you know, a, a graphic advertisement. So that was very clear and that they were white and that, you know, when it happened and the date that it started. Um, so that was, that was an easy surprise to find out. Um, but I think the general big surprise was how many people Williams really, uh, came in contact with not just African-Americans, but, um, also in high society among whites. I mentioned Charles Thorley, but the Roosevelts, he knew all of them. Um, James Walker, uh, he's in the book, um, the jazz mayor, the night mayor, because he, you know, he was known to party a lot. Um, uh, Cardinal Hayes, who he corresponded with, I uh, have some, uh, a letter that Williams writes to, to Hayes in the book. Um, he cultivated these relationships with a lot of these people because everybody who was traveling by train passed through and he, as the chief red cap, was always assigned to the celebrities, the people who were most likely to, to, to want to deal with the top brass and he was the top brass. Um, but they weren't just passing relationships. I mean, I'm sure a lot of them were, but a good significant number of them um, were more profound than... I would have imagined. Um, and he was able to really use those relationships in a, in a significant way where sometimes these people were brought together um, from, from these different, these disparate groups, but also uh, in terms of bettering the condition of his workers. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, Charles Thorley wrote letters of recommendation for Wesley to, to become a fireman, and Wesley's becoming a fireman would help other people 
of, uh, of color to, to move into the department. Um, same with the policemen. Um, or they opened up doors uh, for, he, you know, one of the things that he did was he started an orchestra, a Grand Central Red Cap Orchestra. So a lot of these men, and not only entertained, which of course it did, but it made Grand Central Terminal a destination point, like at the holiday time, before the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree was a big deal, or two years before. Um, people would go to Grand Central, and they did for years, uh, to listen to music coming off of the the balconies. But it wasn't just the entertainment. By organizing them as a professional orchestra, um, it made them more autonomous so they could get jobs on their own, uh, either as part of the orchestra or individually, you know, hire themselves out. So that helped them to use this job in this place as a springboard for their own ambitions. Um, he created a baseball team, and they were competitive in semi-pro pro leagues. Um, and they're all the time not just representing the race by being good and being respectful and being uh, talented and um, and generous and philanthropic. They're representing Grand Central. If you look at the, there's a photo in the book of the baseball team um, posing with their jerseys, and they've got the insignia on their on their jerseys that you see when you walk through the terminal uh, to this day. Um, they had a particular effect on the traveling public because if you go to uh, uh, any strange station, even if it's not so strange, if, you, if, if, it's, if you're traveling and you're not used to traveling, you want to look, you need to ask a question, you need to find somebody who looks like they are in authority. Because they were in uniform and they've got these red caps, and they've got two uniforms because they, they're, they're wearing red caps, and by, by dint of being black, they're identifiable. Um, but it also puts them in a position of authority. They're the ones you want to ask. Um, how do I get there? Where's the, where's the restroom? You know, where's track 13? Or, um, you're going to go to them first, even before you go to maybe the information booth. You might be directed there for something specific. But it gives you a, a, having that, wielding that kind of natural authority effortlessly um, was very good for the morale, I think, of the job that was in essence, a thankless job because it is a grunt work. It's very, very physical and demanding. Um, but those are the kinds of things um, that kind of helped you to get through the respect that they had. And they were very highly respected, which is not to say that they didn't have, you know, crummy travelers, you know, who are, you know, full of complaints or whatever sometimes. But it gave them a certain um, bond, um, something to be able to get through. And I think a lot of those other things, the organizations that he helped, that he established helped to sustain that mor morale throughout the orchestra, uh, the mutual benefit society, because they didn't have insurance. They were working essentially for tips um, and for the most part, not salaried. So this was, this was a hard knocks kind of uh, situation, but it enabled men who took this job to, um, feed their families, and get a real toehold um, into the middle class. What was Mr. Williams' connectiveness to Harlem like? Well, he was one of the first um, of that discernible wave of African Americans that moved up to Harlem. He moves up there about 1903. Uh, he's born on 15th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue and what we now refer to as Chelsea, um, and grows up 
just north of there. At that point, he's born in 1878. Above 14th Street is being called Uptown, you know, because, <laughs> you know, New York is still kind of progressively growing up. Um, and he kind of, the family moves about, and he grows up, uh, like, in the 20s in what's, you know, referred to as the Tenderloin, this west side area that was kind of rough, um, but he's also living a couple of blocks west of the very, very fashionable Fifth Avenue Broadway district where the, a lot of the hotels are. His father was a hotel waiter at a posh hotel, the Sturdivant House on Broadway and 29th Street. And then as he himself is a teenager, he's working across the street at Broadway and 28th Street at Charles Thorley's, um, uh, Thorley's Roses. Thorley um, is an instrumental figure in his uh unofficial education, if you will, because he knows everyone. He's working as a flower messenger. You know, you've, you've delivered fl- flowers are hand-delivered by, you know, a young man usually, you know, who goes to the door or goes backstage or whatever, and these are from so-and-so, whatever. And um, But you can imagine having a job like that, and you're meeting these people who are ordering flowers from the best, and they are actors, you know, people who are famous on the stage. Um, they're politicians. They are, um, in some cases, royalty. You know, uh, the Prince of Wales, uh, not the Prince of Wales, uh, the Prince of, uh, sorry, of um, Henry, Prince Henry of, of Prussia, comes to New York in 1902 and thoroughly takes care of the flowers for this big ceremony at, at Madison Square Garden. So these are all part of the hubbub that's going on in the shop and you get to know he could have looked just in Thorley's registers and in, in, in the ledgers of what people were ordering, what their tastes were, on what occasions they were giving flowers. Thorley was said to have been um, one of the people responsible for the idea of, we say, you know, say it with flowers, of like sending, you know, long stem roses like in a box that looks like an actual, you know, gift um, of helping to launch the the orchid craze and then the violet craze. Um, He's a very astute businessman, and Williams is working for him when he buys this, Thorley buys this little triangular plot of property at 42nd Street where um, 7th Avenue crosses Broadway. And he sells it, he leases it out to the New York Times in 1902, and it becomes Times Square. So imagine, you know, growing up, and getting your education by being a part of a witness to all of these things going on. By the time he is is recommended for work at Grand Central, he's the right person. He's seen the world, black and white. And he's ready as he moves, takes on this job at Grand Central. He, he makes this move about the same time up to Harlem, and he's immediately a man of interest because everybody, whether they know his name not or not, they know his, his reputation precedes him. Oh, he's like, he worked for Thorley. Thorley is very well known among the black, in the black community because he's, he's, uh, his shops are famously staffed mostly by African Americans. And so he's worked for Thorley, and now he's working for Grand Central, Vanderbilt's place, you know. So it makes Williams a man of particular influence and immediate um immediately somebody who you want to bring in. So in Harlem, one of the uh, the big growing emerging uh, organizations is the, the, the Colored Elks Lodge, that's uh, Manhattan Lodge number 45. Uh, so this is a fraternal order. 
that um, was started elsewhere, but it's growing up in a lot of uh, black communities. It was the biggest, fastest-growing lodge in um, in Manhattan of the Elks. There were other fraternal orders as well, and they invite Williams to be in. By 1905, 1906, he's the second in command, uh, and he and his friend Jesse Battle, uh, who has just come up to New York, are close friends, and they are often on the bill that you would see in advertisements for fairs where they're working together um, to make the arrangements, um, which probably involves like hiring the band. Um, so he's constantly um, a part of the the social life in Harlem. Uh, this and a lot of these benefits are fundraisers for for different organizations, um, and even the political life. The, there's a, uh, an image I have in the, in, in the book where he's, posed, he, he's very well dressed in a tuxedo. Um, it's, he's sitting in the Otto Saroni's uh, studio to have this photo taken, which is one of the most um, prestigious photo studios in New York, particularly for entertainment people. And he's wearing um, this little lapel pin that is the shape of antlers. And this was the insignia for the Elks. And it was illegal. At this time, this is the photos taken about 1905. Uh, there was a bill in New York, a piece of legislation called the Grattan Bill, after William Grattan, uh, who was an elk, a white elk, and they were taking umbrage to the elk's rituals um, being taken on and adopted, and uh, really thriving among blacks, and they meant to put a stop to it. So. Um, Elks were, you know, they were lawyers, doctors, regular, whatever. So William Grattan has this bill passed that makes it illegal for blacks calling themselves elks, if you will, you know, to wear the insignia of, of the elks. And um, it's a very mellow picture. You see him posed. It looks like any other kind of studio portrait until you know the backstory. And that was a real surprise um, because people were being beaten up and arrested and indeed this fellow from his lodge is arrested for wearing this pin. And because his lodge is so prestigious, they've got some of the top um, African-American businessmen and lawyers in his lodge. They take it to court, and they win the case. Um, and the judges throw it out and say they have the right um, because the White Elks don't let the blacks into their lodge. So it's not as if they're trying to get over, uh, if you will. And this kind of fight, these kinds of struggles that he's connected to, um, are anticipating, you know, the, you know, the, the modern civil rights movement that will come, you know, some decades later. Also, a lot of the students that are coming through his system that he's hiring, they're studying law and uh, social work. Uh, Lester Granger becomes the head of, he's, you know, he comes, he's a red cap, while he's studying at Dartmouth, I think it is, um, and. Um, He's the uh, head of the uh, National Urban League for many years, a, a major uh, figure. Um, so Williams is producing a lot of the, the... He and his generation are the progenitors of this generation that will be fighting the big fight in the decades to come. So to give you a long answer to your question. <laughs> it's integral to life. The Red Caps themselves are integral to life in Harlem, the social life and the sense of community, that bond. Um, they're considered, you know, quite 
um, essential to the, to, you know, to the quality of life of, of Harlem. And this is true, again, in black communities across the country that have, if they're connected by ra- railroad stations, these jobs, uh, red caps and Pullman porters, are considered um, really solid jobs to have. You mentioned a photograph. And speaking of photographs, which are artifacts, where might some of those artifacts belonging to Mr. Williams or to Red Caps be? Or well, does anything it still exist? Well, one of the challenges, one of the big challenges of, of um, you know, researching the life of, of Williams or a life like Williams, somebody who is not a big celebrity, who's left a big paper trail, uh, he was not a man of letters, so there were not diaries and things like that, was finding things like artifacts. And I was really lucky that his great-grandson, uh, Charles Williams, had become the repository for a lot of photographs. Um, not so many letters. There were some letters, but mostly photographs that he, um, had family members or, or co-workers or whatever, who, uh, many of whom he could identify and Sometimes it was just that, I, like, I know that so-and-so, but I don't really know much about her. Um, and that was a huge... So they weren't archived in any one place. So I was really fortunate about that. But it also, because I knew organizations that he was associated with, I could go to the Schomburg Center, say, and get um, photographs of, of people who I knew he was connected to and, and give some context, like Joe Lewis, the boxer, um, um, Bert Williams, the the entertainer, um, but they weren't all centralized in any one place. It was really kind of, you know, going to a lot of the conventional archives and then using sort of your wits about, you know, where will I find this? Databases, newspaper databases, were invaluable, and so not so much for you know sometimes I couldn't find the original photographs that were shown if if, if an article had photographs, but at least um, just by dint of that that pictured that image being in a newspaper, I knew that that event was recorded and and that gave me some information to go on. Well, would we find his typewriter, a red cap, his uniform? No. No. I mean, there exist in some places, uh, I I know the the Williamson Library, Frederick Williamson Library, is the, the secret library in Grand Central upstairs, and they have a couple of things. I think they had a a red cap. They don't know who it belonged to, um, but nothing personal uh, in that regard that belonged to Chief Williams came. N- no uniform uh, piece. Uh, there were certainly citations. You know, he was interviewed. He was uh, often in the in the papers and profiled, um, but nothing that tangible. Although we do have addresses, we know where he lived. Like. Um, he was one of the first black families to move on to Strivers Row, uh, this very posh section enclave in, in Harlem. And um, that house is still there from the outside. It still looks exactly the same. It's still posh, you know. And he also lived in the Dunbar Apartments, which were built by Rockefeller. And that complex is still there. Um, but that was, you know, that was that was part of the challenge, is, you know. But go back a, a, a second, if you will, in mm. our long 10-minute interview. Yeah. <laughs> What do you mean by secret library? Where is this? Oh. What is this? And, and well, I say a secret. secret. I say a secret. <laughs> there are articles have been written about it. Not a lot, but, it, but certainly a few. But it's the Frederick Williamson Library. Um, I think Frederick. I think Frederick Williamson was um, 
an officer, an, an admin for New York Central. And um, there are a lot of like, uh, there's, there's literature. It, it's kind of a hodgepodge of things. Not terribly, there's no art archivist that I, that I got to meet. Um, I was allowed, I was escorted there. It's maintained by the um, New York Central Railroad Enthusiasts Group. And um, by appointment, you can go there. But there's not like an on-site librarian, and it's, they're not there all the time. So you'll see rows of books. They have um, hanging in there, like rolled up, the red carpet. You've heard of giving the red carpet treatment. The red carpet did not originate at Grand Central, but they probably originated the idea of it making it really, really sexy. When the arguably the most famous railroad in the world at the time, uh, 20th Century Limited, uh, started in 1902 and it ran for 65 years until 1967. And Williams was often associated with it because he would be the one standing at the gate. So if you watch old movies like North by Northwest and, you know, um, people are, you know, are riding on this railroad and often Williams was the first face that they would see as they're boarding or the first one they would see when they returned. But this, the red caps would roll out this carpet along the platform. So you really knew that you were embarking on this special experience, this railroad experience, and then they would roll it back up. So that's up in the Williamson Library and um, a lot of annual reports and, and, and what have you. And uh, there was a series of trade magazines, the New York Central Lines magazine, um, and I used some images that I got from that uh, in the book where particularly there's an image that I, that I show from the, uh, the it was a, don't remember what month, but it was from 1929, of the orchestra that he started. And when it was still a small group, they grew to about 40 strong um, when they're performing at the Lafayette Theater in the Red Cap Follies, which is hmm. staged by one of the most famous um, choreographers of, of um, cabaret shows, uh, Leonard Harper. Uh, there was a, a street dedicated in his name just a few years ago in Harlem, the Leonard Harper Way. Uh, on 132nd Street. And so he staged this show with Peg Leg Bates. That's a name that some people still might remember. He was just coming up then, but he's on uh, heading the bill. And 40 red cap musicians from the orchestra, which is being uh, conducted by Russell Wooding, who Williams brought on board to, to kind of whip his professional-grade musicians into a professional-grade group. And uh, Wooding came up from Washington. He had given the young Duke Ellington work before he moves up to New York uh, in, during the Washington scene early in the 20th century. Where can we find recordings? Do they still exist? Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, it was Wooding who um, got um, the Red Caps Orchestra into the recording studio, and they recorded four songs in 1931. Um, one of them became a, a huge standard called That's My Desire. I, and to say it was recorded by so many people, including um, Louis Armstrong. Um, he does it as a duet with, uh, um, her name is escaping me, uh, Velma. Some of your listeners will be shouting at the, <laughs> at the podcast. Um, Frankie Lane, uh, it was his signature song for a number of years. That's my desire. So they introduced it. And um, you'll find them on YouTube by... Uh, folks who've, who post music. Um, that's my desire. I'll go to go back to that. 
I only learned this, and it's not in the book. And that's one of the things that's fascinating about this stuff, because you, you, you find what you know, and then as soon as the stuff is out, other stuff starts coming in. So I went, you know, to YouTube, and somebody mentioned that, oh, that's um, Alberto Socaras on the flute. Uh, he was an Afro-Cuban flute player. He's said to have been the first uh, jazz flutist to do a jazz solo, recorded jazz solo. Not with them, but it was about that same time that, he, that he's there. Um, and now I'm really excited. And then I went to other sources to kind of confirm, and I, and I see that you know he cited in other places than YouTube, than, from academic sources that you know he played with this orchestra. So that's really exciting. And, and again, it all kind of goes back to Williams because Williams is kind of orchestrating all of this um, by providing employment for these men, making the conditions you know bearable, um, and seeing that they move on because that was a big part of his mission was seeing that they had work but also that they graduated from this work and and moved on. There were many who got their degrees and got their doctor's shingles and whatever and still stayed on the at the job. Um, a lot of that reflected the economy changing, you know, working through the Depression. You couldn't have too many jobs. Um, but I also think it had to do with that sense of community, that, that bond that you had. Um, and you, if, if you were a doctor, there were a lot of dentists that came through as opposed to a lot of medical doctors, although there were a number of those as well. But um, I think dentists found that they could be a lot more autonomous, uh, whereas with a medical doctor, um, you would be limited as to where you could be hired. You know, uh, Same thing with, uh, with lawyers. Um, there was one instance that I have a, a, a citation in the book, a, a letter that the head of the, then of the NAACP, Walter White, is writing a letter to, to Chief Williams asking if he could give a job to a friend of his who just came here from Detroit who was a dentist with a wife and, and kid to feed and his business went bust because of the economy. He needs a job red capping. And so it was not considered... Um, where whites had left it early because if. It was, there was a sense that it was beneath them, they could do better. Even though blacks were relegated to this, I think the thing that was really surprising to me was that they were able to, as the African proverb goes, make a way out of no way, and Williams saw that. Like, um, There's a chapter title that I use, it's a quote, if we cannot go forward, let us mark time. And I think Williams, who was right for this job because of the context that he knew and was able to cultivate both black and white in all levels of class, was able to project that this is not what we want. We deserve better, too. But we'll take this, and we'll play with this, and we'll see what we can do with it. And he did plenty with it. So, so and what is your next project? Don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> I think you know what happens with projects like this is that um, you meet so many fascinating people along the way. Um, I, there are a few candidates. Uh, one of them I've, I've been doing a lot of research on, and he st kind of starts the book because I, I set up before Williams is born the neighborhood that his, his family, his parents move into, that is really steeped in the legend of um, uh, this prominent figure by the name of Peter S. Porter, and he was sort of the one of the best known crusaders for desegregating. Um, 
New York's public conveyances after the famous case of Elizabeth Jennings um, in 1850, uh, 1855. And he's a black abolitionist. Um, he uh, trains people in knowing their rights when they're being thrown off the streetcars. Uh, he also runs this house on, on uh, 20, uh, 26th Street called uh, Porter's Mansion. And it becomes this key place of very few places that are available for black travelers to stay. And um, Edmonia Lewis, a uh, famous African-American um, sculptor, stays there and, and trans transacts business when she's visiting from Rome, where she's based. Um, she moves there to do a lot of her work, and then she comes back. And um, while she's here, she's selling you know, busts of, that she's made. Um, a number of dignitaries and politicians, uh, people of all stripes. So this is the place that Williams is born into, this neighborhood. So he's a likely candidate for um, somebody that um, might be next in line. But I'm thinking right now along the lines of not uh, a single biography, but a, a more of a group biography, a lot of these figures who Williams came in contact with, and some he didn't know at all. But so I'm not sure, but I have some ideas. <laughs> Well, thank you. We've been talking with Eric Washington, the author of the new book, Boss of the Grips, The Life of James H. Williams and the Red Caps of Grand Central Terminal. So where can we find the book? Anywhere fine books are sold. Well, locally, it's at uh, most bookstores, uh, but also you can find it online if, um, at uh, Amazon or bookshop.org. And a reminder to support your local independent Indeed. bookseller. Yes, yes. And even if your local seller doesn't have it, or even your not-so-local seller, anywhere you buy books normally, um, usually if they're out of stock, they'll volunteer to order it for you. So take them up. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You got to hustle now, the A15 is due. Red Cap! Red Cap! That's what you keep shouting to the song. There's no snap. Red Cap! And yet you have to tote that baggage all day long. Whenever folks go on vacation, you're at the railroad station, ready to lend them a hand. But some of them don't understand that a nickel or two, like a dollar to you. So red cap, red cap, save the tips you get for if you do. That red cap, old chap, perhaps someday you will be calling red cap too. You've been listening to Pastrami Agogo and Other Rye Tales of the City. I'm Arlene Shulman, your host, and be sure to like us on Facebook for more information, updates, and future episodes. Happy listening, and thank you again.